1: 7.02 and Cape Talk.
2: The Naked Scientist. Good morning, Chris.
1: Good morning. It's wonderful to be here. It seems like ages since we last had a chat.
2: It does, doesn't it? Jeez, it's like an old friend who's coming for a visit.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, Jacob Zuma hasn't done anything... Re- I would say he hasn't done anything reckless. hasn't done anything very reckless this week, so uh, we're here for a change. <laughs> Well, actually, he, he has potentially done something reckless, but he did
2: it so close to the show this morning that uh, you and I have breathing space before my team can try and catch up with the latest <laughs> recklessness. <laughs> there is a bit of a delay, I just, just for the sake of my listeners to know. So it's not that Chris will be taking unusually big grammatical pauses today. Chris, let's start with a story of artificial implantable bone marrow. That sounds fascinating.
1: Yes, there's a very interesting paper. It's in the journal PNAS this week by Yuru Shia, who's a researcher at the University of California, San Diego. And what this group have done is to come up with a way of making artificial miniature bones in dishes. And these bones have a mineralized outer layer in the same way that your leg bones, like your femur, for example, has strong cortical bone around the outside, and then it has a hollow centre filled with plates of spongy material, like your bone marrow, in which stem cells can be planted, and those stem cells can then produce blood cells. And they've done this by... Effectively, the way they do it is it's it's almost like if you take a cup and you pour in some frozen peas and then you pour in some jelly, let the jelly set around the peas and then dissolve out the peas, you get this matrix of, yeah. uh, of pores or holes left behind where the peas were. And then, then you make the jelly turn into minerals, go hard. And so they've got this bony structure. They can implant this under the skin of mice and the stem cells come out of the mouse bone marrow and go into this artificial bone marrow and then start making new blood. But also, if you take um, stem cells from another mouse and preload the structure with those stem cells, you can implant them into the mice. And then you get a mouse that has about 4 or 5% of its blood cells being made by this small, they're only a couple of millimetres long, piece of artificial bone. And the researchers say this is really exciting because when we do bone marrow transplants on human patients at the moment, you have to obliterate their native bone marrow. And you do this with very toxic drugs or you do it by irradiating the body. And this has significant risk because there's a long delay, rather like the delay on our connection this morning, between the time that you irradiate them or remove their bone marrow and then the new stem cells you put in, giving them a new bone marrow. And you have to support the patient during that period, and they have no way of of making immune cells, no way of making blood cells, no way of making blood clotting platelets. And so this could be one way that you could do this much more quickly and much more safely for patients. So very exciting. Very, very exciting. If you want to give us a call, you've got a question for the Naked Scientist. The lines are
2: now open in Cape Town. You can call Chris, put your questions to him. It gets very, very busy, so it's Fastest Fingers First on 021-446-0567. And if you want to put questions to the Naked Scientist on our Johannesburg number, I'm taking your calls now on 011-883-0702. We've got our first caller on the line, Chris. Mark in Brumfontein. welcome to the show. What is your question? Um, good morning. Um, I'd like to follow up to the naked science. Um, can he, out of uh, the tip of his, finger, uh, the of his finger, think of any uh, medicine or any tablet that was produced by any doctor or any scientist that actually cured any sickness? You know, meaning that um, having flu and a doctor give you a tablet to say, um, you see this take this tablet you are cured you won't get through anymore can you think of anyone that was uh, prescribed or, uh, or, or found to done that particular uh, job ok is there a cure for flu Chris
1: right the only cure for flu is your own immune system to be blunt about it Flu is a virus which means antibiotics like penicillin will not affect the flu. Flu hijacks your cells when you come into contact with these virus particles and it uses genetic information in the virus to take over cells lining your nose, your throat and sometimes your lungs and it turns those cells into virus factories which then pump out thousands if not millions of new virus particles which you then cough out and they infect someone else. Now, the only way that we can really interrupt that process, there are some drugs that will slow it down a bit, and these are called neuraminidase inhibitors, but they don't completely cure you of flu, and people who have a bad dose of flu, especially elderly people, still succumb to the flu. In fact, the flu probably kills between half a million and a million people around the world every single year so it is an important disease but what we can do is engineer vaccines against the flu and that's what doctors are very good at and there are healthcare scientists all over the world who collect samples of flu in each country's flu season and they send those samples to the World Health Organization who then compares the flu that's circulating in the population with what they're going to put into the vaccine for the next season and if the circulating flu has mutated or changed its genetic makeup so that it wouldn't be recognized by the vaccine in future, then they update the vaccine so that people are protected in the forthcoming flu season. But no, at the moment, the only way to cure you of flu is to get your own immune system to do that for you. And in that instance, what happens is white blood cells called CD8 lymphocytes go around in your bloodstream, they can recognise cells that are incubating or trying to produce flu and they kill them. And if you destroy the cell, because the virus cannot grow without the help of one of our cells, if you take the cells away, the virus can't grow. Then another part of your immune system produces antibodies, which are proteins shaped like a letter Y, which can lock onto flu and neutralise it before it can get into a cell in the first place. And in this way, you're protected from the acute case of flu you've just caught by your lymphocytes, and then you're protected from catching it again by your antibodies. Let's go to our next caller in Soweto. Bongani, good morning. Hi
0: doctor, uh, uh, Hi,
2: are you, Chris. how are you? I'm very good, I'm not a doctor, but the real doctor is listening. What is your question? <laughs> <laughs> uh, hi, hi Chris, how are you?
1: I'm good, thank you, uh, go for it.
2: Uh, I've, I was reading this book about uh, genetic Modification in uh, National Geographic. It's about this guy from England. His name is Neil Hobson, and I was fascinated because um, they were mentioning about uh, how genes, how like scientists can um, improve uh, like someone's uh, brain power. So all I want to know is, um, there's this new formula. It's like the latest formula. It's, it's called CR. C- it's C R I S P R R S stroke C nine. I just want to know, um, how true is it that it makes you, if they use that like formula, make one like smart? How true is it? I, I've never heard of it, Chris.
1: Do you know what Bongani is on? an interesting question. Um, Yeah, 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 I absolutely do. And this is the really new, exciting kid on the biochemical block. And and it's called CRISPR-Cas9. And this was actually discovered by uh, potentially two teams of scientists independently in America. I think they're having a bit of a wrangle over exactly who owns the rights to this at the moment. But this is a very precise genome editing system. And, in fact, the way it was discovered is that it is part of the way that the immune system of bacteria works. Bacteria, just like us, can catch colds. And the way the bacteria protect themselves is that they put into their genetic information in their genome a copy of the virus that tried to attack them previously so that they can recognize the genetic information of any virus that comes back again and neutralize it. And so what scientists have been able to do is to lift out of the bacterial cells that do this the machinery that they use for this, and then use it to edit any kind of DNA, because the the DNA that's in a a bacterium is exactly the same DNA the way it works as in our cells. So you can use this molecular machinery. The way it works is that it's like a genetic pair of scissors that's capable of cutting DNA, and you link this pair of scissors to a sequence which recognises your DNA. So you put it into the cell, it will float along your DNA sequence until it finds the bit of DNA that corresponds to that recognition sequence and then the scissors cut. And so you can use this machinery to cut out certain bits of DNA and paste in other bits of DNA just like we used to edit audio on old reel-to-reel magnetic tapes. Mm. And so what scientists are now able to do is is to perform very precise, very accurate and very safe editing of genetic material, and this is being used in a range of different circumstances, but no one yet is officially doing this on humans because of various ethical concerns and safety concerns because what we don't want to do is to edit someone's genome to prevent them having say an inborn disease because we know there are certain diseases that people inherit from their parents we know that you could probably cure them with this condition with this machinery but wouldn't it be awful if in the course of curing the person you introduce some other disease or disorder which they don't know they've got and they then have children, and their children then inherit a totally different genetic problem, and that could have all kinds of problems for the population at large. So people are taking it very cautiously, but in the future, uh, it does look like we'll be able to identify bits of DNA that have gone wrong and then edit them to fix them, and that could include cancer to edit uh, your, your genomes if you'll have a predilection towards developing a form of cancer. You could even edit cancers that you already have to turn them not into cancer anymore. So this is really exciting, and I'm glad you picked up on the topic. A follow-up question from
2: Twitter from Bandile, who wants to know from you, Chris, how far away are we from so-called designer genes where you can choose your children's perhaps, perhaps even their phenotypical traits like eye colour or height, etc.
1: Well, actually, that that technique and the machinery that would be needed to do that already exists. In the year 2000, the a consortium that was sequencing the Human Genome Project published the map of the human genome. Effectively, that was a roadmap telling us where all the genes are. And in the subsequent years, scientists have filled in all the gaps and we know what the main genes are that are linked to a lot of aspects of, of why we are the way we are. Genes that cause us to have certain skin colour, eye colour, hair colour, curly hair, straight hair. We know what these genes are. We even know what genes the genes are that do the same thing in a dog. So, theoretically, what you could do is when you're having a baby you could have some embryos made by in vitro fertilization. You could take a cell out of those early embryos. This doesn't seem to be harmful. You could read the genome of the developing embryo and you could check for what traits it had. You could tell if it was a boy, if if it was a girl, and you could potentially therefore select embryos on the basis of their genetic makeup and decide Mm. which one you wanted to put into the uterus, into the lady, and hopefully impregnate her with to then have a baby. Uh, it's one thing to do this, it's one thing to have the scientific ability to do this, it's, it's a totally different consideration from an ethical point of, of view, though, because you are directly meddling with nature, and not everyone's comfortable with that from a cultural point of view, but more importantly, are we comfortable with that from, from just a human point of view? Mm. Because th- this has all kinds of potential impacts, which we haven't even begun to consider yet. So at the moment, people aren't officially doing this, but at the same time, given how easy it is to do, I wouldn't be surprised if there were not people who are doing this mm-hmm. in various places, in, in many countries, because they possibly could. And therefore they're choosing, say, the sex of their baby, um, or they might be considering you know, what traits they, they could want from the repertoire of traits we know the genes for at the moment, in order to have a certain sort of baby. But uh, many, many people think this is a bit repugnant because you're directly meddling with nature.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Fascinating bioethics. Peter in Pretoria, good morning, sir. Hello, morning. What is your question? Hello, morning. Yeah, I, want to, I want to find out from uh, from Chris. Right, uh, He was talking about uh, the bone man, the, bone, uh, the bone marrow transplant. There was a time when uh, I I, I, read a second, uh, I read an article talking about uh, curing HIV using a uh, bone tra- uh, bone, uh, bone, uh, bone marrow transplant mm. yeah bone marrow transplant right and then my next question would be how far are we from getting the HIV cure
1: crisp and to the point Chris uh, okay so there's two really important questions in this um, the first question is what was the story where someone was cured of HIV using a bone marrow transplant mm. this happened about ten years ago it was a person who had HIV and had had HIV for a long time and had developed a kind of blood cancer, a a kind of lymphoma, which is commoner, about 100 times commoner in people who have HIV than in people who don't have HIV. One treatment for this kind of white blood cell cancer is to obliterate all of the white blood cells in a person's body and to then replace the bone marrow with healthy bone marrow, which gives them back all their white blood cells, but um, not the cancer. Now, it just so happened by pure chance that the person who was in this situation and needed this bone marrow transplant, the closest match, because you need someone who's a good genetic match to be your bone marrow donor, because otherwise the new bone marrow cells will react against the host. That's called graft-versus-host disease. It, it just so happened that the donor patient had a mutation or a genetic spelling error in their cells called CCR5-Delta32, People who have this mutation are much harder, if not impossible, to infect with HIV. So when they gave this person a new bone marrow and therefore new white blood cells, they had this genetic change in them which rendered them very resistant to HIV infection. And when this patient recovered from the bone marrow transplant, the HIV he had had before had gone. And as far as I know, and scientists have reported on this a few times since, it hasn't come back in that patient. Doctors don't know exactly why it hasn't come back. They have a fair idea, but we don't know absolutely the mechanism, but it's really good for that patient because it it would appear that he's been cured from the blood cancer he had, and he has also been cured from HIV. Um, We're still a long way from, from curing HIV because it is a moving target. This virus, when it gets into your body, it hides inside the genetic information of your immune system, and it periodically comes back to life, damages the cells that it's hiding in, and then goes and hides somewhere else. And as it does that, it also changes itself genetically. It it acquires so-called mutations or changes, and this means that it keeps staying one step ahead of what we're doing to it. And it's very hard, therefore, to make vaccines that will completely protect against it. It's very hard to make drugs that will work unless we combine lots of drugs together to keep it suppressed. But at the moment, we've got no way of flushing it out from all of these places it's hiding in. So as soon as you stop taking the drugs, then the virus comes back again. 24
2: minutes after 10, you're listening to the familiar voice of the Naked Scientist. Have you got a question you want to squeeze in? We've got in for another six minutes. O two one double four six O five six seven. Call me right now. You can put your question to Chris. And, of course, in Johannesburg on the number O double one double eight three O seven O two. 702 Go to Cape Town. Colleen, good morning. What is your question for the Naked Scientist? Morning, Eusebius. My question is... Do our voices change as we get older? I always notice that when someone calls in, I can gauge what their age is um, from the tone of their voice. You can hear a young person as opposed to an older person, and do our voices change?
1: Mm. Chris? I think uh, you've sort of answered your own question, which is, Yes, our voices do change as we get old. In the same way that the the shape of our faces change, the shape of our bodies change, we all get a bit saggier because you tend to lose the elasticity in your tissues. Things become a bit bigger. Some things become a bit smaller. And as a result, the resonance that uh, is your voice within your head and your mouth actually changes very subtly. And so you tend to amplify slightly different tones in in the sounds you're making more than others. And this subtly changes the way you sound. So in the same way that your face is the same face but looks a little bit wrinklier and droopier as we all age, your voice also gets these other characteristics as you get older. And so many singers will say that actually they, they can't sing notes that are quite as high as they used to when they were younger, because everything's got slightly floppier, and it's uh, and slightly less muscle tone, and, and it's much harder to control the breath, for example. So all of those things make a difference. Also the cadence of your voice changes. Cadence means rate, or the pace. And when people get older, then A, they tend to slow down and think more before they just open their mouth. I know that's been true of me. I definitely think (laughs) a bit harder before I say anything these days than I used to. But also, um, as well as thinking more carefully before we open our mouths, also it is an unfortunate uh, consequence of ageing that our brain does age. And therefore, because language and speech is such a cognitively demanding process you tend to find that people may be more hesitant or slower in speaking because they're having to think harder as they get a bit older in order to process information. You don't process information as quickly the older you are compared to, say, a young person. And those things will also make a difference to the to the, to the way we sound when we speak.
2: Okay, let's take... Uh, uh, actually, no, I think we've just run out of time. I'm so sorry. Dr. Radley Carroll, we'll get to your questions next week. Uh, thank you, as always, uh, for delighting us with your knowledge and sharing it so lucidly chris
1: have a beautiful weekend and you everybody thank you eusebius good to talk to you again and uh, back to normal next week i hope absolutely
0: thinking about your next career move in research and development then it's time to make your move to the uk the nation that's investing 20 billion pounds in r&d over the next two years